And Lord, there is nobody who can stand against us because you stand with us. And I pray, Father, that we would be of the mindset to make our stand in you. And so, Lord, we just come before you once more asking God that you would bless us through your word and just praying for tonight, Lord, that the things that will be coming into our lives or at least that will be entering in in the week to come will be things that you have prepared us for even tonight. And so we just lift up this time in your word that you would bless us and that, God, you would train us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you turn and greet your neighbor. Greetings. I thought you were waving at me. Well, um, between the studies that I do and uh, teaching down at the Bible College, I didn't really have time to prepare a study for tonight, so we're just going to watch the Dodger game. Is that okay? No. <laughs> just kidding. Turn your Bibles to First Chronicles, First Chronicles chapter 21. And again, we are doing a survey of First Chronicles, not necessarily a verse-by-verse study, as you will see tonight, because we are doing chapters 21 through 27. And so, yeah, very ambitious, isn't it? Um, it's amazing. We have the older people who are the worship teams, and I usually get, out, get up here about at the bottom of the hour or at, for instance, tonight, 6.35, well, tonight I got up here at 6.20. They're really fast. <laughs> um, I, I want to start out our study tonight quoting from Proverbs chapter 4 because what we are going to start out looking at in First Chronicles is the heart of King David. And, well, not in such a good way tonight. But in Proverbs chapter 4, there's a warning to all of us because, yeah, we can serve the Lord. We can be diligent but it's so easy for our hearts to go the, the way of our flesh, to be influenced by the world, or even become filled with pride. And so in this book of the Bible that is filled with wisdom, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 20 says, My son, give attention to my words, incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. Put away from you a deceptive mouth and put perverse lips far from you. Let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet and let all of your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Remove your foot from evil. Again, do not turn from the right or to the left. Do not be overly legalistic when it comes to the Word of God and who you are. Do not become overly liberal, but just have an ear to hear what the Spirit has to say. Here at church tonight, when we expect it, but also out of season times, and expect the Spirit to speak to your heart as you sit with your cup of coffee in the morning and your Bible upon your lap. Expect the Spirit to speak to you as you're maybe preparing your Bible study for a small group or whatever it might be. Anytime that we're in the Word, expect the Spirit to speak to you because God, as we saw this morning, is constantly refining us. Well, it's good to be a man after God's own heart, as David is described as, but you had better keep watch over your heart especially one who has a heart for the Lord and the things of the Lord, the devil is going to try and steal that away. 
Now, there is the reality of spiritual warfare, and we've got to keep that in mind. On the day that you were saved, on the day that you became born again, the devil lost you, if you will. But what does he seek to do from that point on? He seeks to render you ineffective in what God wants to do through you in the kingdom. And what I mean by that, make you ineffective in your marriage, make you ineffective in your raising of your children, make you ineffective in your servant at church, or wherever it might be. And so we must guard our hearts, we must protect ourselves, putting on the full armor of God and understanding the ways of the wicked one and the deceptions that are there. We saw earlier when it was time for kings to go to battle, David was taking some time off. And instead of being proactive, if you will, in his Christian life, he kind of rested on his laurels. Instead of fighting, he soon was surrendering to sin, and that's when the Bathsheba incident occurred. And because of that, people died, and, well, his kingdom was never really the same. Although God gave him grace, there's no doubt about it, but it's the physical damage that is caused when we make... um, Decisions like that and influence those people who look up to us as who a godly man or a godly woman is to be. Because as I've said many, many times that we can never forget, because you're a born-again believer, there's somebody in your life who looks up to you as an example of who a Christian is. There's always somebody less mature in your life that is looking to you as what a a immature Christian is to obtain to. And so because of that, we must live the godly life, a life that reflects the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Bathsheba incident isn't even mentioned in Chronicles. We saw it in Kings, but here is an incident that is being mentioned. And again, David let his guard down and he'll have some heartfelt issues as we enter into chapter 21. Look at verse 1. Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. And so this is a work that the devil is doing. Again, he's seeking to render David ineffective. How is he working exactly? Well, we're not really told, but when he stands up, the idea he's confronting Israel and he moved David, he influenced David, he probably tricked David, whatever it might be, used pride of his heart in order to direct him in the way that he desired to go, the devil desired to go. Keep in mind, the devil is not the equal of God, but the devil, well, since he can't get at God, guess who he gets at? He gets at God's people, and that's what he's doing here again, seeking to render this king who has a heart for God, but seeking to render him ineffective. Why is this? Why would numbering the people be such a spiritual attack? Well, again, the attack is to be at the point of David's pride. Point of his pride? Yeah, he's wanting to know how strong he really is. He understands the nations that surround him, understands the victories he's been able to achieve. He's probably been sitting around and contemplating the might and strength of his kingdom. And he asked Joab, his commanders, we'll see in a little bit, go and number the people. And he's really wanting to know the men of military age because then he'll equate that to, the, to his strength. But the problem is his strength was never in that. If he would remember back to the day that he fought Goliath, he understood that this man was blaspheming the living God. 
and he understood that <clears throat> he was even beside himself, that the rest of the armies of Israel were doing absolutely nothing. And so this young shepherd boy with just a slingshot and a handful of stones went down there and confronted him and defeated him and took his head from him. But now, now again, that's how he was when he was young. That's how he was when he was on fire, if you will. Now he's older, and we're going to start, as we finish out the book of First Chronicles, we'll see the final days of King David. And it's very unfortunate. It's a phenomena that I've seen in the church today. Those people who were so on fire for the Lord at some point had such trust in God's word and what God wanted to do and just to see God move and to have that excitement. After a while, well, it kind of gets stale, kind of gets old. Not a movement of God, but our participation in the movement that God wants to do. We've got to keep ourselves fresh, understanding that God, God does great things through people whose hearts are just continuously held out to him. Paul said, the one thing I do is leave the things behind, but to continue to push forward. Paul wanted to win the race. He wanted to run the race as if he was going to win the race. And so we studied last time, or at least in our last study, we saw that David killed his giants. And because of that, others were influenced. Others saw what David did, the great things David did, and they killed their giants as well. But now all of a sudden we see David giving in to sin, and I wonder the influence that he's now having on those who so looked up to them. I, I, I look, and you know, you'll see it in the news every so often, some sort of pastor that has given in to you know, finances, you know, as far as the temptation, and usually it's women, whatever it might be. And I just think of the damage that he does, not just to himself. God's able to maintain his ministry. God can overcome anything that man does. But for instance, I always look at the wife. She's lost her pastor, she's lost her church, and she's lost her husband, or at least who she thought her husband was. I think about the children and the damage done to those children. My grandchildren, my, my, my young grandson, who's about two, he comes in here and he looks at the TVs and he says, Papa, Papa, Papa. But what that reminds me of is the great responsibility that I have to these young people in my family, but outside of my family, that look up to me. And again, for anybody who's been called to be a leader, and we've all been called to be leaders, if the devil can get at you, if he can take you down, he can take a family down, he can take a group of people down, he can take a church down. And so we must be mindful of the reality of spiritual warfare. Not only was it these mighty men that looked up to David, but it's, we're not, it's not spoken of in Chronicles, but his children were just a mess. King David, and unfortunately, a lot of times, they, they just made, when they came time to make their decisions, they made decisions as David made decisions. And we see just the horrible things that they were involved in as well. But somewhere along the line, David's dependency upon God shifted to a dependency upon self. So it says here, Satan stood up against Israel. There are four times in the Bible that we see Satan specifically and openly at work. Now, this is apart from the temptation of Christ. First, there was Eve when sin entered in. And we saw the ways of the devil as he used the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life to tempt Eve. And as he did, Eve gave in to sin and it affected the whole human race. There was Job next when character was confirmed, when God was 
using this man as an example, Satan, Satan took everything from him, his children, his servants, his health and his wealth, just all of these things, but Job kept his eyes upon the Lord. And then there was Joshua, the high priest, and Zechariah. He was accused by the devil, and the devil, if you will, had that list of sins. And so he was accusing the high priest of probably ever sin, every sin that he ever committed. But the Lord stood up and says, this one is mine, is a brand that is plucked from the fire. And there was Joshua, the high priest, and all of his priestly garb, but it was all filthy and disgusting and dirty. It was the outward appearance of sin. But what did the Lord do? He took those garments off and he put his righteousness upon that man. And what does that do? That stops the mouth of the devil. And since it stops the mouth of the devil, it should start stop us from even accusing ourselves. And now here we have David. David, he's, well, this is a time when failing is going to lead to falling. Again, verse 1, now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So David said to Joab, if you recall, that's his general, and to the leaders of the people, go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan, from the south to the north, and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. And Joab answered, may the Lord make his people a hundred times more than they are, but my Lord the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why then does my Lord require this thing? Why should, he be ca- why should he be a cause of guilt in Israel? So you need to see here that Joab is recognizing the sin that this is. Verse 4, nevertheless, don't you hate that word? God will tell you, don't go there, don't do that. Nevertheless, don't say that, don't commit that. Nevertheless, and it's usually the advent of sin. Verse 4, nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, because the king's word prevailed, therefore Joab departed and went throughout all of Israel and came to Jerusalem. Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to David. All Israel had 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and Judah had 470,000 men who drew the sword. But he did not count Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. Joab understood that this was the king's sin, and he probably felt that he was even participating in it. Now, a couple of three things here. First is the census. A census within itself is not something that is sinful before God. God even gave a procedure to take one. We're not going to go there, but in Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 through 16, he gave instruction. Israel is about to enter into the promised land, and there's going to be battles to fight. Since there's battles to fight, it's obvious that these men of military age are going to be killing people. Now, God has a sanctity for life, and he has given that to us as well. It's why man cannot kill without immunity, without his conscience being vexed. But because these men were of military age, there was a ransom to be paid. So these men were to be of 20 years and older, men of military age, and there was to be this ransom or a price paid for redemption, and it was for the purpose of avoiding a plague, a plague or military defeat. Since these young men were going to be going and killing, God wanted them to pay a ransom. Because again, he's wanting them, he's ordering them to go in there, and he's ordering them to cleanse the land of these people, but still he's wanting them to, make, to keep a, um, 
just the mindset of how precious life really is. Now, the people that were in the land, they were guilty. God gave them opportunity to repent. We see this in Genesis chapter 15. But they refused to do so, so God is bringing judgment upon them through the Israelites. But nonetheless, they're not to take enjoyment or they're not to kill without, well, with clarity of conscience. There is to be a ransom to be paid, and I would imagine that would clear their conscience. Numbers chapter 35, verse 31, it says, Moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, for they shall surely be put to death. So if there is somebody who who kills sinfully, then there's no such thing as a ransom for that. But again, because of the respect for life that we are to have, even in war, ransom was required for a killing. Jesus fulfilled this in that our ransom is Christ. In Matthew twenty twenty eight. just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. We were sold out to sin, but Jesus is the price paid in order to get us back. As they're going and they're killing people, and there's the blood and just all of the stuff that's involved in that, and the taking of life, it was necessary to pay this price, and theoretically to, to get them back, in order to, even though God commanded them, in order for them not to suffer the repercussions of that. Now, remember when God used Babylon to go and to attack Judah? What was one of the things that God had against Babylon was they took pleasure in the killing and in capturing of Judah. And that was a charge that God brought against them. And so all were to fight and all were to pay this ransom. The sin. The sin is in the numbering. The numbering as far as the counting of the people for prideful purposes. If there is sin here, and there is, there will also be the conviction that sin brings. Anytime in the midst of sin, God gives us the opportunity to stop, to turn around, and to go back to God. But David didn't do this. Matter of fact, he just kept on sinning and kept on going for a period of nine months and 20 days. So David is as guilty as guilty can be. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceptive spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. If you've ever been burned, what happens, and God has created us this way, there's going to be pain for a period of time. But after a while, those nerve endings that have been seared, the pain's going to go away and it'll even become numb. Well, for a conscience to be seared, it's the same idea. First of all, what is our conscience? Our conscience is an ear for the Holy Spirit. Our conscience is when we're living a life that is apart from God or contrary to God. It's the Spirit that has given us guidance and shown us direction. And a lot of times it's for the purpose of conviction of sin. Conviction of sin is necessary. It leads us to the place of repentance for sin. But here David, had the, God had to be talking to him for this period of nine months and 20 days. And David just kept on ignoring him. Joab realized it was sin. For sure, David knew it was sin. What did David do during that time? More than likely, he seared his conscience. But then when it was over, after he heard the numbers, verses 7 and 8, his conscience, well, 
the spirit got the best of him. And it, and it says in verse 7, And God was displeased with this thing, therefore he struck Israel. So David said to God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing, but now I pray, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. What God has done is sent a plague. And, and it's that which caused the ear to be open to the spirit once again. David to hear. A lot of times it's the repercussions in our lives that causes once again to take note and to hear what God has to say and properly evaluate our situation. We can so turn a blind eye to the sins that we commit, but God brings them to the forefront in order for us to properly deal with them. And so David, David realizes how foolishly, how, fool, how big of a fool have I been? Even Joab, my, my, my general, has recognized this. And now we know there's about 70,000 people that died. And, and it's as if God is saying, is this your strength rather than me? Well, what happens if I start taking your strength away? What happens if I start whittling down these people? Now, it doesn't mean that these people went to hell. I mean, these people more than likely are in the presence of God. But you have to see the importance that to to whom much is given, much is expected. And David has been given charge of this most powerful nation in the world. And the problem when the greater degree of leadership you have, the, the greater degree or the greater opportunity you have of affecting so many lives. And so David had this great responsibility with everybody that God has given him, but he has acted, and he's coming to that realization now, he has acted so foolishly. Now God gives him some, some choices here in verses 9 through 13. Then the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer. So this is a prophet that would, God would speak to the prophet. Nathan was also a prophet. Gad was a prophet, and God would speak through this prophet to David. Keep in mind, a prophet is one who speaks the word and the will of God. Verse 10, he tells Gad, Go and tell David, saying, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself that I may do it to you. So he's asking him to choose one of three forms of punishment. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus, the Lord, thus says the Lord, choose for yourself, verse 12, either three years or famine or three months to be defeated by your foes with the sword of your enemies overtaking you or else for three days the sword of the Lord, the plague in the land with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now consider what answer I should take back to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hands of man. And so you do see the faith of David. And as he is asking that, this hardship that is to come upon him, the repercussions for the sins that he has committed, he says, let it be by the hand of God. And so this plague comes upon the people, and the people die. And it says in verse 16, Then David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, having his hand, having in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. So David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell on their faces. What you're seeing there is, is a picture of repentance. And God is going to relent. And because of this thing that has occurred in David's life, David's understanding, there's got to be this place that, that, that is, is close by since Jerusalem is the capital. He hasn't brought in the tabernacle, but he has brought in the Ark of the Covenant. 
And we need to have this place that is close by, that God is able to be worshipped. And a part of worshipping the Lord is dealing with the sinful nature of man. Verse 18, Therefore the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at the word of Gad in which he had spoken... um, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan turned and saw the angel, and his four sons who were with him hid themselves, but Ornan continued threshing wheat. So David came to Ornan, and Ornan looked and saw David, and he went out from the threshing floor and bowed before David with his face to the ground. He's honoring him as his king. And David said to Ornan, Grant me the place of this threshing floor, that I may build an altar on it to the Lord. You shall grant it to me at the full price." that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. But Ornan said to David, Take it to yourself, and let my lord the king do what is good in his eyes. Look, I also give you the oxen for burnt offerings, the threshing implements for wood, and wheat for the grain offering. I give it all. Then King David said to Ornan, No, but I will surely buy it for the full price, for I will not take what is yours for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings that which cost me nothing. And David gave Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the place. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And he called on the Lord and he answered him from heaven by fire on the altar of burnt offerings. So the Lord commanded the angel and he returned his sword to the sheath. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Onan, the Jebusite, he sacrificed there for the tabernacle of the Lord and the altar of the burnt offering, which Moses had made in the wilderness, were at that time at the high place in Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. There's a standard here that is set for worship that we should all consider. And I want to look at this and and what I just read as far as David wanting to worship the Lord and God leading him to this place where Ornan had formerly owned but sold it to the king. Also keep in mind the worship of the Lord with Abraham and his son Isaac and how he had offered his son as God had commanded. And, And see a few concepts for worship and see... Are, are these filling my heart in, in my worship, our hearts and our worship to the Lord? That it wouldn't just once again be a series of songs, a set of songs, six songs, and I come up and teach, and then one more song and we all go home. But we would truly understand that what, what, what a church service is, that there's worship that prepares our heart to come before a living and a holy God, to understand the magnitude of the salvation that... that that occurred in order that I'm able to enter in. Again, we've gone through all of our songs and we've pretty much have taken out songs of entertainment, songs that weren't completely theologically correct because we must worship the Lord in spirit. That means not the Holy Spirit, but with all of my heart. But also we must worship the Lord in truth as well. And we see this mindset of King David, keeping in mind Abraham as well. But first, worship is to be done God's way. Worship is to be done no other way. And so David is coming to this understanding that sacrifice must be offered to the Lord. And we've got to have this place to offer sacrifice. 
And so as this field was offered, this threshing floor is what it was, was offered to David for free, he realizes, how how can I possibly worship God from that which costs me nothing? He's understanding that we must worship God from our substance. We must worship God sacrificially from our lives to present our bodies as, as living sacrifices. But the worship of God has truly got to cost me something if it's just surrendering myself to the Lord. I mean, that's a pretty good picture as we raise our hands in song, the universal sign of surrender, and that, Lord, I'm giving of my heart and I'm giving of all who I am because all who I am is all who you have made me to be. It was to be done sacrificially originally. It was a lamb without blemish. Abraham was giving his son, his only son, his son whom he loved. We must be willing to worship God with those things that are so dear in our lives, with our finances, with our time, and with our attention. There's so many demands on those things, but am I willing just to stop and to truly offer those things to God? Worship of God must be done in faith. He understands that as I give to the Lord, the Lord has given me so much more. Abraham did not know what was going to go on with the offering of Isaac, but he just went and did it because God had commanded him to do. I do not worship the Lord. Nobody does in order to receive back. We we worship the Lord in order to give to him the adoration that is due to him. But we do get so much more back as we worship God. We worship God because he is able to keep us, to provide for us. He knows what we need before we do, and he gives according to his will and not according to our desires. Worship, worship is based upon God's good grace. It was based upon God's good grace with Abraham. We see this definitely exemplified in David's life because really he should have been the first one that was killed in the plague. But also, if we put ourselves in David's spot, we're just as guilty as he was. But the good thing about it is God is just as gracious. One last thing to note, the same mountain that Abraham built an altar on is the same one that David has built an altar on, and it's the same one that the cross of Christ will be planted upon in years to come. And so it was that area that God has called his people to to worship him and to sacrifice him. And as Christ was put upon that cross on Mount Moriah, it reverberated throughout all of eternity. And we worship at the foot of the cross or we worship in the mindset of that sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate expression of love, the love that God had for his people, has for his people. Acts 13.22, and he raised up for them David as king, to whom he also gave testimony. Now this is testimony that God is giving and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all of my will. But nowhere in the scriptures does it say that King David was a perfect person because there's no such thing. Even in Genesis chapter 6, we're going to see, I say we're going to see, I'm teaching that at the Bible college, but... I believe it's in verse 8, Noah found grace in the sight of God. Just as all those people who perished in the flood, Noah was guilty too. And the idea is he was not sinless, but God chose to give him grace and brought him through to the other side of the flood. 
Entering into chapter 22, although David could not build the temple, we saw that a couple of weeks ago, he wanted to do it and the prophet said to go for it, but then God spoke to the prophet and basically said, no, you're a man of blood, I want it to be constructed by a man of peace. So David is doing everything here that he is able to do to see this work come to pass. And so David is doing a great work here now in the preparation of the temple that more than likely he is not going to see it come to fruition. And I was thinking about that. And I'm thinking about our church. We just had our 20-year anniversary. Looking back at that first day when we had our first service, the first years, and all the way through to today, I often wonder what kind of foundation are we laying? I mean, as far as permanency, You know, I I believe that God has done a good work in our church. You can just ask the people who came to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, ask the people who have grown in the knowledge of the Lord. God's done a great work. But just maybe through our efforts in worshiping the Lord, through our efforts of giving and through our efforts of serving, maybe we're laying a foundation for even a greater work for Calvary Chapel, Ontario. Never, never, never sell God short. So just as David is gathering together for this great work that's going to happen, more than likely after the, well, and for sure because we've read the book, but after the day he died, he's got, he, he's got this mindset of faith in what God wants to do, looking forward to it and understanding God's going to do something greater in the future, even more so than he has done during David's day. Verse 1 of chapter 22 Then David said, This is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. So David commanded to gather the aliens who were in the land of Israel, and he appointed masons to cut hewn stones to build the house of God. And so David is preparing this at this select site in Jerusalem. Now we saw earlier previous in the previous chapter that the tabernacle and the altar that Moses had in the wilderness, those are at Gibeon. We saw a few chapters ago that David had brought the, um, the Ark of the Covenant into Israel, but now we're making Israel the main focal point of the worship of God. It's the capital, the religious and political capital of Israel. Now, before the Jews entered into the Promised Land, Moses was specifically told in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 5, but you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all of your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place, and there you shall go. Well, that is Jerusalem, and we see it today. Because what city in the world has been more spiritually attacked and continues to be as spiritually attacked as Jerusalem? You enter into Jerusalem, and it's just an amazing experience if you ever have the opportunity to go to Israel. You just know, because I'm, and you know, part of it is just that all of your studies, but I believe a part of it is the spirit. You just know you're in the center of where human history is basically started and continues even to today, at least his history with the Lord. And you see that this is just a place that is just so multicultural, just people from all over the world. Really what you have is you have a lot of groups that are being led by, by guides, and you're hearing all of these different languages. We had a, a brother who was with us, was talking to some people from Jerusalem, and uh, he said, well, what are all these people doing here? And he goes, well, are, are you a Christian? And he said, no. Are you Jew? No. We just came to, to see Jerusalem. But they're not understanding this attraction because they don't know the Lord. But if you know the Lord, the attraction is just amazing. 
We don't make an idol out of that city. We can worship the Lord wherever we are at. But again, there's just something special. Why? Because God chose that place out of all the other places in the world. Verses 2 through 5, David gathers the building materials for the temple that will be built in his son Solomon's day. So David commanded to gather the aliens who were in the land of Israel, and he appointed masons to cut hewn stones to build the house of God. And David prepared iron in abundance for the nails of the doors of the gates and for the joints and bronze in abundance beyond measure, and cedar trees in abundance for the Sidians and for those of Tyre brought much cedar wood to David. Now David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, famous and glorious throughout all the countries. I will now make preparation for it. So David made abundant preparation before his death. And so David is making all of the preparation, which is important for the physical things. God's blessed us with this building. We had to be out of our old property, and some guy came walking in my office one day and said, hey, are you interested in a building? And and, and God just spoke to my heart at that moment, and God says, I've got this place for you. And and God brought us here, and, and we've been here for some 14 years, and God has been ministering, and God has been providing for that place, because the place does minister. That's just the fact. There's no doubt about that. And he's given us all the physical things for ministry, all the the worship things, the sound boards and the video stuff and the chairs here and the stuff in children's ministry. I forgot to announce it this morning, but if you get a chance, go look at the classrooms in the children's ministry. We just had them all repainted and kind of came out cool, especially if you're a, a kid. I think it's a really neat thing. And so God provides for those things because those things minister. But also, you can't neglect, it's not about the things and it's not about the place ultimately It's about the people. So just as David prepared for the work of the structure, we see starting in verse 6, he's also preparing his son Solomon. And it should be our prayer that our future generations would build more glorious lives than we have. I look at the time when I came in the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and I believe my kids, give or take, were probably from like three years old up to six, seven, and eight, whatever it might be. And I just see the opportunity they have and the things that they have learned, the truth that they know to honor God in that. And my prayer is, Lord, that they would do greater things, that you would do greater things through them than you have done with me. I'm looking at my grandchildren. Even, you know, they even got more years than my kids who God do great things in and through their lives as well. That must be our prayer for the future generations, especially as we read to the end of the Bible and we see how evil things are. Well, God still prevails in that period of time and he'll still do a great work through his people and we I'm thoroughly convinced Pastor Chuck was thoroughly convinced though that we are preparing the generations who are going to minister all the way up to to this time of tribulation and even some of them into the tribulation at the time of the rapture which is the beginning of the tribulation all born again believers will be taken away But some of the people we're ministering to, even to now, although they don't come to faith, they will come to faith as they enter into the tribulation, and God's going to do a great work during that time as well. And so, just to go through this chapter fairly quickly, 
verses 6 through 10, we see the charge to build. He's giving him the order to build. God did not allow me to do it, but you've got this great opportunity. Verses 11 through 13, the encouragement to courage. Stand strong in the orders and the power of God. Because Solomon, there's going to be a time he looks at himself, he looks at his ability, he understands his lack of maturity, but it's not about you, Solomon. It's all about what God is able to do. In verses 14 through 16, we see the inventory for success. Again, the things that were stored up. In verses 17 through 19, the motivation of others. There are going to be others that will come alongside of him in order to do this work that is bigger than any man is able to do. As the Lord has been good to them, they shall do a good work in response to God. Now, entering into chapter 23, and really through to the end of Chronicles, which we won't get there tonight, but what we're looking at is the last days of King David and looking at the structure of leadership that God had put in place and David had embraced. And David is not only looking at the things that have been in place, but the things that will be necessary for when the temple is put in place as well. So in chapter 23, verses 1 and 2, So when David was old and full of days, he made his son Solomon king over Israel, and he gathered together all the leaders of Israel with the priests and the Levites. We see here David's basically calling for a national convention for the purpose of the coronation as king of his son Solomon. And so as he's bringing all of these leaders together, the first people that we're going to see, and again, we're going to go through this fairly rapidly. I'm not going to go through and read all of these names because you will hate me afterwards if I attempt to do that. But first we see up are the Levites. The Levites were the ones who were charged with the oversight of God's house. In the wilderness, it was the tabernacle. It is soon to become the temple, soon a matter of of quite a few years, but nonetheless. And so you've got the Levites. Now, in the Levites, there were clans of Levites, different families of Levites. Now, Aaron was part of the clans of the Levites, and Aaron and his sons were the only ones who were allowed to be priests. Not all Levites could be priests, but all priests had to be Levites, but they specifically had to be sons of Aaron. Now, we see three other clans that are listed here, and these clans were to do the work of service. It's going to change a little bit once the temple is put in place, but again, keep in mind in the wilderness because that's the detail that we have. Now, in the wilderness, for that traveling tent as Israel was wandering through the wilderness, these clans, their job was to break down, set up, and transport the tabernacle. The Levites, as they consist of these clans, well, the first clan was for those of Gershon. Now, keep in mind, you have the tent, the tabernacle, and the court area of it. And God was leading his people through the wilderness in a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. So they'd be wandering through the wilderness. The tabernacle would be all packed up and put on carts, and they're wandering through the wilderness. They're following these pillars of clouds, cloud during the day and fire at night, and then it stops. And that's when God is telling them that they are to set up camp. And so these clans, they do their duty, they break out their portion, they set up what they're able to set up, and then Aaron and his sons are the ones who are able to do the rest of it. And so there's this place of worship when it's acceptable to God, the glory of God fills it. 
Now, when it comes time to leave, they know it's time to leave because the glory of God raises up to those pillars again. And now it's okay for the appointed people to go in and, to the, and do the dismantling. And so those of the clan of Gershon, they were to be the ones who transported the tabernacle curtains and stand guard over the wagons that were being used. That, were their, that was their specific job. Secondly, those of the clan of Kohath, that we, they were to transport the holy things, the table of showbread and so on, the menorah and, and those things. Aaron and his sons were to pack up the holy things because uh, those of Kohath were not to, to personally touch them, but they were to be the ones who were going to transport them. But although this was a great privilege, it also carried a great responsibility because they were threatened with death if they stepped outside of their bounds. If they touched something they weren't supposed to touch or they looked inside, for instance, the Ark of the Covenant, if they looked inside someplace they weren't supposed to look. So again, they were chosen for this great job, but they had great responsibility. And then the third clan was those of Merari. Their job was to tend the wooden frames and the pillars. And so God laid these things out for them to do. And so what David is doing, he's having these sons of Levites come and present themselves because now their job is going to be changed a bit because no longer are they wandering through the wilderness, but God is going to have a permanent home. We enter into chapter 24, and we have the sons of Aaron. Once again, the sons of Aaron are Levites, but they're priests, and they're the only ones who are able to be priests. The priests were the ones who were to offer the sacrifices and tend to the holy things. The only ones who could be priests, again, were direct descendants of Aaron. Now, Aaron's sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, they established homes in Israel when they entered into the promised land. Now, they have since died, but in David's day, the two great priestly families were Zadok and Ahimelech. Look at chapter 24, verses 1 through 3. Now these are the divisions of the sons of Aaron. The sons of Aaron were Nadab and Abihu. Now their ministry was really short. If you remember, they offered strange fire to the Lord and God took their lives. But also there was Eleazar and Ithamar. And Nadab and Abihu died before their father and had no children. Therefore Eleazar and Ithamar ministered as priests. Then David, now we're fast-forwarding to David's day, then David was Zadok, the sons of Eleazar, descendants of Eleazar, and Ahimelech, the sons or the descendants of Ithamar, divided them according to the schedule of their service. Divided them, divided their family members who were qualified as priests to do this great work of ministry that was set before them. And if you would read through, you would see there's 24 courses of priests who rotated and serving in two-week shifts of ministry in the temple. Keep in mind, to be a priest was a very busy job. You're constantly butchering these animals. Because of the sinful nature of man, something has to die. Now, I remember my dad encouraging me to go into a specific specific occupation because he says people are always going to need that and I I never did and I'm kind of glad that I didn't because it really wasn't me and wasn't talking about a pastor so Um, but just think if you're thinking you know you're you're a son of Aaron and I want to be a priest well to be a priest you've got built-in work because what's your job to offer the sacrifice for sin and people are always going to be sinning And so you're always going to be busy. 
And so these course of priests, 24 courses or groups of priests, they rotated and they earned their keep, if you will, because again, the basis of what they do is the sinful nature of mankind. Then we enter into chapter 25, and these are the worship leaders or the sons of Asaph. Verse 1, moreover, David and the captains of the army separated for the service some of the sons of Asaph of Haman and of Jeduithan, um, who should prophesy with harps, stringed instruments, and cymbals, and the number of skilled men performing their service was, well, then he goes into all those people who were worship leaders within the temple. And so these are the singers and the musicians who led the people in praising the Lord in the temple. There's 288 people here who are divided into 24 groups or 24 courses. And then we have chapters 26, In chapters 27, again, we're not going to go through all of these details, but we will go through the list of who is represented here. He's got the leaders of the gatekeepers in verses 1 through 19. These are 4,000 valiant men who guarded the gates leading into the temple, the storerooms, and the treasuries that no unbeliever would enter in or no Jew who should not be in a particular area would enter in. There was the treasury of the officers. Those are in verses 20 through 28, are the treasury officers. Verses 20 through 28, these have stewardship over the temple finances. There were the officials and the judges. These are verses 29 through 32, men who had charge of the affairs of the kingdom in respect to the work of the Lord and the service to the king. It's all based upon God's word and how looking at Exodus and all that's listed there in the instruction and how Israel is to conduct themselves. We have the military officers as we enter into chapter 27, verses 1 through 15, just looking at verse 1, and it says, "...and the children of Israel, according to the numbers, the heads of the father's house, the captains of thousands and hundreds, and their officers served the king in every matter of military divisions. These divisions came in and went out month by month throughout all the months of the year, each division having 24,000." Now, these were those who were put for military service in the area of Jerusalem. This was not necessarily during times of war. They were to be the ones who were guarding the people and protecting the temple and protecting Jerusalem. These men served as commanders once one month out of every year. Then in verses 20, um, 16 through 24, we have the tribal officers, the governors and princes over each of the tribes of Israel. And so if you had the king who wanted to deliver messages to his people, a lot of times he would just call call in the 12 leaders of the various tribes, speak to them, and they would spread the message. Next, we have overseers of the king's property and resources in verses 25 through 31, and then the counselors, those who counseled David on economics, on battle, on you know, schooling, whatever it might be, verses 32 through 34, basically advisors, friends, and teachers. And so the lesson we are to receive from all of this is how God gives such order to his ministry. He gives us such order. And again, we need to understand that God is in the minute details of the work of ministry within the church and the work of ministry within your life. It's why Paul could write in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that all things work together for the good because God's got his divine hand over all things. In 1 Corinthians fourteen forty, we are told, let all things be done decently and in order. 
What is that verse in relation to? Well, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, it's about spiritual gifting. It's about doing the work of the Lord and what God has commanded you to. Now, in so many areas, you see what is claimed to be the gifts of God done out of order. But we, as much depends upon us, we must do all things as we are commanded by God. Without a plan, chaos erupts, and with chaos comes confusion, and that causes division, which eventually leads to destruction. But what we need to see here is David had the foresight to see and to understand that as God had a great will to build this temple that he would be glorified through, he was setting his son Solomon up for success. Are we setting our future generations up for success through the example that we set and through the resources that we give? Something to consider. Father, once again, we just thank you, God, that you have given us your word. And I just pray for your word as much as, Lord, it pertains to each individual life here. I pray that you would give us an ear to hear what the Spirit has to say to the church even today. I pray, Father, that you would make it unique to each life that is here and to each ministry that is represented. And, Father, you would just bless us as we are obedient. Lord, I lift up those who have come out tonight. I pray that you would go before them in all that they do. And God, we just pray that you would be glorified through our humble efforts. We just lift all to you, Lord, just thanking you. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you all stand, please? If you ever listen to K-Wave and Pastor's Perspective, the host of it is Don Stewart. Don Stewart is coming out next Sunday morning to share with us. And so... Um, come on out and support Don, and I, I don't know exactly what he's teaching on yet, but I do know that Don's going to be here, and so I invite you to come out and to enjoy his ministry. Other than that, keep us in prayer this week as the couples retreat, uh, preparation week, couples retreat is this weekend, spiritual attack time in so many different areas. Um, we are having uh, Holland Davis, uh, he's pastor of Calvary Chapel San Clemente, coming out and ministering to us. And so just leave it all up, keep it all up in, in prayer. Keep the couples up in prayer that they would travel safely and God would do a great work. God bless you guys. Have a great week. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see. I want to see you, to see you high and lifted up, shining in the light of your glory, pour out your power and love as we sing holy, 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 open the eyes, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart, I want to see you, 
prayer for the night that we want to see Jesus. Have a good night.